and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today, the legendary songwriter Jim Valens. Now Jim, longtime collaborator with Brian Adams, having co-wrote some of Brian's biggest songs, Heaven, Summer 69, Cuts Like a Knife to name a few. Jim kind of shares stories of making the songs of Brian, and their latest project, or one of their latest projects, is Pretty Woman the Musical on Broadway. Jim talks about how that came about. They talk about how he met Brian, their divorce, and then their ultimate reconciliation. Jim also helped artists such as Glass Tiger, Hart, Aerosmith, Joe Cocker come up with some great songs. Jim was nice enough to stop by my office for this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, so Jim, thank you so much for uh, coming here, and I do most of these like over the phone or Skype, but just to have you come here is is really amazing. So th- th- thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was telling you before we started that um, I only had one person come to my house. You know, being living in Connecticut, it's Joe Bouchard from Blue Oyster Cult come in and just like for like two hours sit in my kitchen. It was it was really amazing. This this takes the cake, I think, because I've been a fan of your work and Brian's ever since I was a kid. Well, wow, thank you. So yeah. I don't want to, you know, make you feel old, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm old myself, so. Too late for that. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually got a Blue Oyster Cult story. We can get to that at some point. Okay. Yeah, go, go ahead. Well, We're kind of like all over the place. Okay. There's really no uh, format. So. Um, so it would have been 1983, maybe, 82, 83. And my friend Bruce Fairburn, who did, you know, albums with right. ACDC and Aerosmith and, and Bon Jovi, um, got asked to produce um, an album for Louis Call. Right. I'm not sure if he ever did, but he, he got asked. So uh, he came to Brian and I and said, "Any chance you guys could write a song for, yeah. for the album?" And uh, you know, we're both fans of Louis Call, right. so it was a you know great challenge. So we sat down and listened to a bunch of uh, of their stuff, and of course, um, you know, "Don't Fear the Reaper" is kind of the classic, right? Of course, <laughs> Louis Call track. And the thing about that song is it's got that great riff, you know, that's the whole right. kind of thing. So we thought, okay, we'll write a, we'll, we'll come up with our own yeah. riff. <laughs> you know, so we um, sat down with, you know, across from each other with guitars and and you know, I had a little A minor thing, and then Brian tried a little thing. Right. We went back and forth for probably an hour or two and and, and just kind of distilling it and fun, trying different things. Yeah. And at the end of that couple of hours, we we had a riff. I, I wish I had my guitar here okay. to play it, but it's you know it was run to you. So we wrote run to you. Right. And I thought this would be great. It'd be perfect for Blue Oyster And we gave it to Bruce Fairburn and Bruce played it for the band and they didn't like it. Wow. Yeah, so shot down in flames, right right out of the gate. So we thought, okay, well um we'll swap it around and we sent it to um thirty eight special. Okay. And they passed, hmm. and um, so it just kind of sat on the shelf for a bit. And Brian was recording uh, his Reckless album, right? And kind of got pretty close to the end. And his producer Bob Clearmount said, "You know, we're, we're probably one song shy here. You know, of a, of a full album, right? Uh, you know, you got anything?" And Brian said, "Well, this is a song that Louis to Colton and Thirty Eight Special passed on, and so." Um, Clearmountain liked it. Brian played it for him, played the demo. And I, I think it was one take. I think he just played the demo for the band. Yeah. The band learned it. And I think the, f- the first pass, that was, that was that it. That was it. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's where that song came from. Wow.
happened like a lot was that the only time it's happened where you guys have kind of like shopped a song around or it was requested you know to write a song and then they either want it and Brian just says I'll just do it myself yeah there's been a few of those I'd have to uh, give it some thought but um, I mean you know being a songwriter and all you do for a living is write songs right. so you you do have a lot of I mean every song's got a story but yeah. there's lots of you'll write a song and it, it, uh, well, we wrote something for Joe Cocker. There's, there's another one. So um, Joe's last album, uh, before he passed away, Brian and I were uh, were asked, and we we're very excited to write a, a song for Joe. And so we went back to our favorite Joe Cocker uh, period, which was Mad Dogs and Englishmen with William right. Russell and, mm. and that. And we wrote a, a couple of songs that we thought would be perfect for Joe. Yeah. Um, one was called um, uh, Driving Under the Influence of Love. Okay. And it's a great title. <laughs> yeah, we, we thought so. Yeah. Too. You know, it's a little bit funny, a little right. bit funny. So we wrote that song, and we sent it to Joe and his producer, mm. uh, Matt Serletic, and, and they didn't like it. Okay. I, one of the reasons I think that sort of filtered back to us was Joe's a recovering alcoholic. Oh, okay. <laughs> so driving under the influence of love, I think Joe kind of went, you know, I don't want yeah. to say that. Right. So, but, so that song. But Brian put it on his album that actually was just released this year, 1st of March. Right. So Brian put uh, Driving Under the Influence of Love on, on the album. So that was another example of yeah. a song that we wrote for somebody else, but, right. but they passed. Right.
it's Shine a Light, the album, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, the album is really good. Now, 2019, the whole record industry is completely different. Now, like, what's, like, the goal for, like, that album now? Is it, like, I mean, that's our record sales, but what is it, just a love? Is it just for the fans? I mean, it's like, wh- what's the purpose? Is yeah. <laughs> why are we still doing it? Right. Um, and he said it's just great to have stuff out there, just, to, right. you know, once every couple of years, just, you know, ha- have a new album out there. Um, Brian still tours, I think, 150 dates a right. year, uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, pretty much year-round. And he says you can't get away with, too many new songs in the set. The fans yeah. come to hear hear the old stuff, but um, he always does. You know, one one, one song or yeah. so from from whatever album is latest. And and yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate in this day and age of streaming and downloading, and you know, it kind of uh, the music industry kind of you know right. um, took a dive after yeah. after Napster. It's just it's the way things are. But we were fortunate in the seventies, eighties, and nineties to sell. Right. You know, significant number of albums, so yeah. it was it was fun while it lasted. Right. So now it's just just keep doing it. You know. Yeah. Like I, the last time I saw Brian was the Reckless tour, which was like wow. probably five years ago. I mean, the, the 30th anniversary one. Oh, that one. Yeah, that one. No, no, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've seen him, you know, plenty of times. Yeah. But and obviously that one he played, you know, front to back. And I'm maybe I'm in the minority. I love that, but also if an artist puts out new songs, I also want to hear them too. Yeah. You know, I'm sure the artist wants. I know it's kind of like double-edged sword. You know. I recently saw Tears for Fears, and or the last time they put out a new album, and they played mainly seventy percent new stuff, and then you know stuff from some big share and whatnot. But and I'm sure that really didn't go over well with, with the fans. But it's kind of like you know double-edged sword because you 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 want to keep your fans, but also you want to kind of attract newer fans as well. Yeah, and for yourself, I mean, I I, um, I mean I'm not a performer, so right. I, I don't really have much insight into the dynamic of what is it like to play the same songs over every and over night and over, and yeah. over and over and over and over. Um, but I, I guess as a uh, performer, you want to mix it up a bit and right. challenge yourself, and you know, I mean, I've seen McCartney a few times, and of course you you go to see the Beatles songs and the McCartney solo yeah. songs, and he's still puts out an album every few years mm-hmm. and you know they're I mean um, I mean God bless him you can't hmm. you can't knock Paul McCartney right of course but, yeah. but his you know present output is not it doesn't hold the candle to, to, to the work stuff. he did with, with the Beatles so you know the fans aren't that interested in hearing the, the new, new stuff, stuff but he still tosses a few in yeah. I mean for him you know for right of course yeah. you're not going to tell Paul McCartney not to do it no <laughs> yeah. oh, you, you tell him right <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, next time I see him yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so go- going way back um how did you first like get involved in the business? Well, at the Beatles. Um, I was 11 years old in in '64. Um, never heard of the Beatles. Didn't right. know who they were, what they were. I was interested in uh, you know Batman comics and mm-hmm. New York Yankees and right, you know Mickey Mantle yeah. and you know, all that. And not really, r- music wasn't really on my radar. Right. But it was a family tradition. Every Sunday after dinner. Uh, we watched the Ed Sullivan show, just okay. kind of what everybody did back then. Right. Black and white TV, yeah, little little screen, <laughs> and um, so this particular night, uh, February 9th, nineteen sixty four, sit in front of the television, and Ed Sullivan comes on and says, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, and uh, suddenly there on the TV, there's these four guys who look like they just landed from <laughs> Mars or something. Right. You know, they're all dressed the same. They got the same haircut. Yeah. I was like, what? And I was mesmerized, just like blown away. Yeah. And and I mean, my life before that moment mm-hmm. and after that moment, you know, I mean, I'm, right. I still haven't fully recovered. Wow. So so that really yeah. messed me up. And then 
you know, the next morning, Monday morning at school, it's all anybody it talked about was, did you see the Beatles last yeah. night? You know, and then right. from then on, it was just, uh, I, I just wanted to do whatever it was they did. I wanted yeah. to do that. Get right. me some drums. Get me a guitar. Anything. I just, I want to yeah. do that. Right. It's so funny because I was just talking with my mother over the weekend, and we were talking about the Beatles, and she saw them. 64 when they came to Forest Hills wow. Stadium and they came down in the helicopter they landed and she said that you couldn't hear the whole concert because everyone was just screaming yeah. all the girls were screaming her included so just like you know one you know probably 90 minutes that however long it's just a constant scream wow. so it's uh, it's pretty amazing just you know the legacy they've had and it, it was a phenomenon never to be repeated right yeah so you were in prism you know which uh, I didn't really know too much about you know. You, know, uh, you were the drummer, right? And yeah, the songwriter, was, right? Obviously, well, I wrote most of the songs on the album, right? And yeah. then you left the band. I did, yeah. right? Well, was that just because you just didn't like the whole rigors of being in a band, or you just preferred it, to well, be that, the songwriter? That was part of it, and, and just the dynamic in the band. There were there okay. were factions. There were right. uh, members of the band who um, wanted it to be uh, a blues band, okay. and other members who wanted it to be a pop band, right. and some wanted to tour, and some that didn't. And so it's like it was not really a, it wasn't a happy band right. right out of the gate. So I, I did one album and, and, and one short so tour, and I thought you know, that's right. not really what I wanted to do. You know, do yeah. Not? So like in, in that instance, like who wins out? Like if you have different factions, is it like just a lead singer? Is it a primary songwriter? Is it like who like who decides then? Well, like I mean, I, I would have thought. Go? I mean, seeing as I wrote seven out of nine songs on the on the first album, right. um, and I don't just write a song. I have a vision about how I want it to sound, okay. you know, what instruments uh, you know that should be uh, used, and you know, tempos and right. and production and mix. I, I hear the whole thing in my head, and. Um, that takes that. That's not something you just go out and, and jam. You you right. you have rehearsals. You you yeah. work on the arrangements. And there were some members of the band who didn't want to do that. They just wanted okay. to jam. Like just let's just go out and play and see right. what happens. And I said, well, no. I, I hear the bass part doing this, mm. and I hear the keyboards with yeah. this sound. And so there was a lot of tension and, and and disagreement in the studio during the whole making of that album. So I mean, I'm not I'm not looking back. I mean, I'm not. Right. It, it didn't quite. Uh, realize my my vision, okay. and so I figured, well, you know, we're not all on the same page, so I'll just you know remove myself, and right. they can be the band they want to be. Yeah. So, like, when you write a song and you said like you have a vision of it, and you've written obviously countless songs, you different, you know, probably hundred artists, right? That yeah. You, yeah. When you hear a final product, for the most part, are you like satisfied of it? I mean. I mean, has there been an instance where he's like, I really don't like this this version of yeah, the song? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had, like, instances of both. I mean, uh, back to Joe Cocker again. Right. Uh, Brian and I wrote a song that Joe did record called When the Night Comes yeah. uh, that Brian and I wrote with Diane Warren. And we we did a demo of, of it uh, yeah. that, you know, addressed sort of instrumentation and, and arrangement that, that we envisioned. And um, Joe's producer, Charlie Midnight, took it to another place that I, I think was way, way better than, than what we had envisioned. I was right. very, very happy with, with what he did, the female backing vocals, and he did a really yeah. great job. So he, he elevated right. our, our, our demo.
I'll be back for you, it won't be long But for now there's something else that's calling me So take me down a lonesome road Or me just to let me go That suitcase weighs me down the memories I just wanna be the one you run to I just wanna be the one you come to Ted Nugent, we didn't okay. write a song for him, but he right. did. He did a cover of a song I wrote with um, Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry. Oh, he did a ragdoll. Ragdoll, right? yeah, yeah. So Aerosmith did it first. I, right. I wrote it with Stephen and Joe, and and the three of us did a demo, yeah. and then Aerosmith went in and recorded the master that uh, I, I loved, and then I thought they, yeah. you know, checked all the boxes, and right. and um, and then a couple of years later, Nugent did a, a cover of it, and. That song is all about swing and swagger, and yeah. and no one's got more of that going on than Aerosmith. Right, of course. You know, yeah. There's just a you know kind of a vibe to that song, and Nugent just like plowed through that like a you know bulldozer through a cornfield or something. I mean, just just missed all the nuances and all the vibe, and I mean, so that was an example of a song that I I just thought you know missed the missed the point. Right, and like there are so many now. Covers of Brian songs. I mean, yeah. I just you know I've lost endless. Track now yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, is there any that you really, really like? Like? Oh yeah. Um, uh, Brandy Carlisle did a really sweet okay, yeah. version of Heaven. Uh, yeah, acoustic guitar that I that I really liked. Um, let me think. Um, I ended up liking uh, DJ Sammy's version of, of Heaven, Heaven yeah. which was. At first, I mean, not really my cup of tea style right. wise, but the more mm -hmm. I heard it, yeah, yeah. you know, cool. Yeah, there's lots of examples of covers that that right. uh, that I've enjoyed. 
Okay, and you mentioned Aerosmith. We'll start with them. I'm not really that big an Aerosmith fan. But, you know, a couple songs here and there. Ragdoll is, is up there. I really like that song. But you pretty much, I mean, when you guys rep- worked on Permanent Vacation, yeah. they were like all but done, right? And yeah, they, they really were, yeah, they've got been, them they've been written off. Yeah. I mean, the album before that, I think, was called Done With Mirrors, I think. Um, yeah, the band, they, they were all um, messed up on drugs. Right. Uh, they all lost their houses, their cars, their wives. They were all broke, yeah. and um, yeah, that was a, a, a band in, in right. distress. And I think that even you know, Joe quit for a while. Okay. And, and the band was pretty much done. Right. And then uh, two people came into their lives: John Claudner, who was A and R man that signed okay. them to Geffen Records, and Tim Collins, who was the manager who came along. Right. And Tim said. Um, Look, you guys all need to get clean. You all need to go into rehab, get clean. Uh, first guy who falls off the wagons out of the band, but you've got one more shot here. Right. You know, and Tim um, and John, um, you know, got them back on their feet as a band. And then Bruce Fairburn came in as a producer, and then Bruce brought me in as a okay. co-writer, and, and Desmond Child and and, right. and, and others. And um, I mean, you know, the rest is history. They they made a great record, and it was their comeback and. Yeah. And then they went on to um, uh, a couple more albums after that that were in the, you know done with Fairburn mm-hmm. in, in the same vein. Yeah. Did they work with you after that album again or no? Yeah, yeah, t- yeah. I did two more with them. Okay. Yeah, um, Permanent Vacation, Pump, and e- one more after that. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Holly Knight also was involved, right? A yeah, bit? yeah. On, on Ragdoll. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's a, a, a short story. So Stephen and I. Uh, wrote Ragdoll with, right. with Joe, and uh, John Clarter was a very particular guy in our wise, and he really inserted himself mm. too, too much sometimes. I think. Right. Um, he's we, the song was called Ragtime. Okay. Because it's got a very again swagger, swing, yeah. New Orleans kind of right. vibe. There's even a you know clarinet at the end. We, we were going yeah. for a New Orleans kind of a thing, and Claudner said, um, "Don't like the title <laughs> Ragdoll. Uh, sorry, Ragtime. Ragtime. Don't like the don't like the title." Um, so Stephen and I, well, we disagreed with him to start, but you know, Claudner was, um, you know, get a new title to the song, yeah. not, not going on the album. So St- Stephen and I sat down and tried to come up with, uh, probably came up with a dozen titles, I don't right. know, you know. And somewhere in the in the song, there, there's a lyric anyway, uh, uh, like ripping up a rag doll. <laughs> That's just it's just a, yeah. a, a line of lyric. Anyway, nothing that Stephen and I came up with uh, satisfied Claudner. So Claudner said, I'm going to, we're in Vancouver. Claudner said, I'm going to fly Holly Knight up here from LA. Yeah. So Holly flew up. I didn't uh, sit with her. Uh, okay. Stephen and, and Holly sat down right. in Stephen's hotel and um, came up with Ragdoll. So, I mean, that was her only contribution okay. to the song, is right. um, uh, the title. Okay. Don't mind, I'm coming on my seat. 
Oh, yeah, loads. Yeah, yeah, right. And she was in Device. That, you know, yeah, band. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think she originally recorded uh, Obsession. Yeah, Michael Dibber. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, Michelle. Can you interview her? No, I've, I've tried. Yeah. I've tried. She didn't go back to me, but oh. I spoke to Paul Ingeman, who was also in Device with her. Yeah. So I did an interview with him, but I'm still trying. Well, I guess we'll go to Brian now. Um, after you left Prism, is that when you first met him? Yeah, I, I had actually just quit Prism, well, maybe a year before. I quit Prism in 77 or, no, 78, yeah. Okay. Hadn't been long. And Brian was in another van, uh, band in Vancouver called Sweeney Todd, right. where he replaced Nick Gilder, who went on to have a hit with Hot Child in the City. So Brian had just quit Sweeney Todd, I had just quit Prism, and um, we ran into each other in a, in a music shop in okay. Vancouver, a guitar store, and um, the woman I was with in the store knew Brian and introduced okay. us. And he was 18, uh, still living with his mom. Right. Just, I mean, nothing really going on, no, you know, yeah. trying trying to get something started. And Brian said, why don't we get together and try and write something? Yeah. So we did a couple of days later and, and wrote a song the first day. And, and then yeah. here we are 41 years yeah. later, you know, we've, we've never stopped. Right. Now, how how was it, like what was your first like perception of Brian when you, you met him? Uh, talented, yeah, like like scary talent. Right, and he was uh, obviously you know a gifted uh, writer, singer, played guitar pretty good. Um, his energy was still, um, you know, almost like a five year old, <laughs> you know, on a chocolate binge. He right, was, he was just bouncing <laughs> off the walls. Right, and. and and, and that that was a good thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> and a bad thing but um, you know just an amazing you know tenacity ambition talent just the, the whole package so I, I mean I, I knew I had found found my my creative partner right yeah yeah so you released his self-titled album which I don't think really did anything it, it did nothing it was like a minor blip in Canada right that was really it I yeah mean, it, it was sort of ill-conceived Right. We hadn't really sort of thing. I mean, he he hadn't his voice hadn't matured yet either. Okay. He was still, you know, right. hadn't quite found his voice yet. Yeah. But it was a good process to go through to record the album. Kind of just get your feet wet yeah, and everything yeah. like that, right? Yeah, we learned a lot doing it. Yeah, we learned a lot about how not to make a record. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but then you guys definitely improved upon with you want it, you got it, which yeah. was a really good album. That's when you first got Bob. Yeah, Clear Mountain Clear came in. Bob, right? A guy named David uh, Claudner. Okay. Not, sorry, not David yeah. Claudner. David Kirschenbaum, sorry. Okay. From A&M Records uh, put us together with Clear Mountain. Yeah, and uh, Lonely Nights is on that, right, album? It is.
Um, there's some other good ones. Uh, Wasting Time, right? Is that on that one? Uh, no, that Can't was on the very first album. That was the very first one, I okay. Think, um, I'd, I'd have to see the list. 40 years ago. <laughs> right. Um, I think Best Was Yet to Come was on that, which is a... Nothing, that's on... Um, uh What's it called? Cuts and a Knife, yeah, yeah. Well, but, um, so much for my memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of, like, your your website, it's, it's great, by the way. Kind of going to other places, jimvalens.com. It has, like, different... Uh, Stories of each song, yeah, and yeah. which which is fabulous. Uh, how much time did that take to work? Well, on? I, I sort of went on a bit of you know went down a bit of a rabbit hole a, a couple of years ago and, and and did the website, and I mean since I did the website, the software that I did it on is now obsolete. So I've been meaning to update the site, but I I've got to update the software first, and right. that's a whole can of worms. So <laughs> it's a little bit outdated, and some of the audio doesn't play, but. Mm. Um, yeah, if you go on there, you'll you'll get the um, yeah, it's it's fabulous. Yeah. yeah, and there's little videos as well. Yeah, yeah. So what you when you got it, I guess Brian had a little bit of sense of humor and really wanted to have a different title of, of the album, right? It was like Brian Adams hasn't heard about you either. Or something yeah, that's like that. right. <laughs> you know, the title for that album. Yeah, yeah. and um, obviously the record company didn't approve of that, but yeah. But then like his trajectory was first album, you know, really didn't do anything. Second one, you know. I guess made a little bit of a stir, but then it really took off with uh, Cuts Like a Knife. Yeah. And had, you know, fabulous songs, obviously, straight from the heart this time, and uh, Cuts Like a Knife. Um, any good stories about making that album? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is we just, we got traction. Um, uh, I mean, Canada has, actually by, by law, radio stations are supposed to play Canadian artists, right? Yeah, some, yeah, I think back then it was 35%. Okay. It might even be higher now. Um, but for some reason, they, they just didn't help Brian a whole bunch. Hmm. You know, he, he really had right. trouble getting, even though they, they were supposed to play his music, it, it just didn't happen a bunch. Right. But um, Detroit um, started playing okay. Brian's records just across the border in right. Canada. And, and that sort of got him um, a foothold in, in the U.S. And then he toured with... Um, Journey, I believe, and the Kinks, and a few other bands right. that really um, helped give him a leg up okay. and, and introduce him to an audience as well. Right, and Foreigner too, I believe, right with Lou Graham. He, he, yeah, he, he, yeah, and he performed uh, backup on Lou some of the songs. Lou ended up singing yeah. some backing vocals on, on the album. Right, and like Straight from the Heart, I th- think is probably my probably the obviously a ballad, probably one of his best ballads. Um, was that like an easy song? To I, I, I didn't write that with him. Oh, okay, yeah, that's the one song I didn't write with him. Okay. But I remember. Um, and he wrote that, um, he was only 18 or 19 when he wrote mm. it, that was an early song. Okay. And I remember I was actually, uh, I remember the moment I was in bed one morning and he phoned and I don't know if he woke me up or if I was still awake, but he phoned and said, I've just written this song, I want you to hear it. And he, right. he, he played Straight From The Heart for me over the phone. <laughs> I said, it's amazing, yeah. it's a really good song. I could start dreaming about it now. I've been dreaming Straight from the heart You say it's easy But who's to say That we'd be able to Keep it this way But it's easier Coming straight 
Closes the shows with it. He still does it all these years. Yeah, later. it's yeah. When it's from Breakfast Star, he, he closes yeah, it, and yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's it's great. Because I mean, with him, I mean, obviously people have different you know favorite songs, and probably I don't even know, probably most recognizable for Summer '69, and that's not even his most successful song. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's really amazing. But um, yeah, cuts like a knife. That really, you know, took off, and then Reckless came out, which was a complete monster. Yeah, that was again. It was a direct trajectory where yeah. you know those first four albums. Right. Each album was was better than the one before. Oh, we were getting better at songwriters. Brian was building his fan base. Um, so yeah, everything kind of came yeah. together for that album. Right, and I think they had we had guys at six or seven singles on that yeah, album, where yeah. every every song could have been a single yeah, on, on, on that album. Covers, yeah, six or seven singles. Yeah, um, what was your like most? Uh, I want to see you, you, something you're most proud of on that album. Um, I mean, the song that's had legs and and just you know is the gift that keeps giving is Summer '69. It's, right. it's still. You know, yeah. The most popular song. I mean, on my royalty statements, all these years <laughs> later, it's still the song that right. that gets the most airplay and, and sales still. I got my first real six string, bought it at the five and done. Played it till my fingers bled. Was a summer of '69.
and um, seeing Brian's shows, um, you know, not that all his songs aren't well received, but I think that yeah. one still, when really? he starts playing it, that gets pretty much the biggest. Yeah, because he incorporates the crowd singing into it. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's but but funnily enough, um, I, I mentioned at the beginning of uh, our chat that you know, Run to You was a, a last minute sort of. Just right. We'll just toss it in and see yeah. what happens. Um, we wrote Summer '69, and we did a demo of it, and we didn't quite like how it sounded. You know, it was, um, you know, how in the middle of the song it, it, it breaks down with a twelve-string guitar kind of a yeah. thing. Well, we actually originally started the song that way okay. with the with the twelve-string um, instead of the chunky guitar that ended up being right. on, on the record. We started it with the twelve-string, didn't like that, and then we did the chunky mm. arrangement. This is all mm. just basement recording. Okay. Sort of road test the song, right? And we didn't like that either. And so again, Brian's in the studio with Clear Mountain, and didn't do Summer '69. Okay. I mean, just didn't think it was quite right. Right. And then they eventually said, "Well, let's just record it anyway." So recorded it, and Brian and I still weren't happy with it. We didn't yeah. think it had had you know achieved our our, our vision. Right. Um, but it went on the album anyway. And mm -hmm. so, uh, however many years later, 35 years later, right. I, I hear it on the radio. Yeah. Honest to God, I don't remember what it is we mm. didn't like about it. Right. But in the moment at the time, time. we just thought it yeah. just, just didn't happen, you know? Right. And when I've seen, you know, seen Brian, you know, I can't remember how many times, but th the last few times he actually talks about, you know, the meaning of the song. And he, you know, says it was kind of sexual. Now, I don't know if that was the intention when you uh, wrote it, or I, that maybe that kind of took, a, took on a life of its even. own. I mean, I got a whole story about that, too. Right. I mean, um, you know, Brian would, would, would probably dispute this or disagree with right. but, but that started about 10 years ago where, yeah. you know, ba on stage banter, he said, now here's a song that, you know, has nothing to do with the summer of 69. Yeah. And, and, and the whole crowd sort of, of course, and, yeah. and, you know, and I think that that shtick started, so yeah. he still does it. No, the song wasn't even called Summer 69. The song was called Best Days of My, my Life. Life. So, um, uh, in fact, that even the story I told a minute ago about yeah. the, the, the various demos, even yeah. prior to that, when, before we even recorded the song yeah. in, in my basement, we, we just wrote the song, you know, I think uh, Brian played guitar and I played bass when we, when we wrote it. And it was just, you know, those are the best days of my life. Yeah. And that was the title. Mm. And then it was a couple of weeks later, we went back and looked at it and said, you know, that that's not a great title. And then buried in the first verse was yeah. this, again, this line. Just, right. You know, um, it was a summer in 69. Mm. So we thought, that sounds like a title. So we just yeah. shoehorned that into a few spots mm. in the song and changed the title of the song to uh, summer in 69. Mm. And... And then Brian, you know, again, 30 years after that, or 20 yeah. years after that, decided to, yeah. you know, create have a new little... Yeah, have a little fun with the crowd. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's about the sum, it's about, right, exactly. you know, let's read the lyric. It's about yeah. being in a band and having a girlfriend right. and high school and summers, yeah. and you know. Right, playing guitar. And, yeah. You know, yeah, of course. Now another like I guess unlikely song, which was his first number one, was Heaven, yeah. and that really also wasn't really supposed to be on the album as well, right?
Um, it was recorded a year before Brightness. Right. So um, our publisher called us one day in 1982 or 83, um, and there was a movie that needed a song. Um, movie called A Night in Heaven mm -hmm. that um, bombed. It was, right. a, it was a dreadful movie. Um, but we, it was one of the first times we've been asked to write a song for a movie. Yeah. So we, we uh, watched the movie. Um, they sent us some, you know, a rough cut. Of yeah. It. And um, Leslie Ann Warren was the, was the actress that was in it. And so we wrote a song called Heaven yeah. and submitted it. They liked it. They put it right. in the movie. And the movie bombed and so nothing was ever yeah. heard again. But when it came to Reckless a year later, um, Brian had already recorded the song. It was right. you know mixed mastered and yeah. just a piece of cake to toss it on, on the album. So it was never not going to be on the album. No, it was just already not written for it. it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was already. And then um, it's only love, which he yeah. performs as just a, a solo, which you know is great as well. And then top it off with Tina Turner. How did uh, how did that happen? <laughs> We didn't write the song as a duet. We wrote okay. it just as, right. as, as a song for Brian to sing. And he'd already recorded it and, and sung it. Okay. And I'm, I'm trying to remember how that, how that came to be. I mean, Brian was a fan. Right. And somehow he was in touch with Roger Davies, who was Tina's mm -hmm. uh, manager. And Tina, at that moment, wasn't huge yet. She, I mean, yeah. she, obviously she'd, she'd had a career with right. you know, Ike and right. Tina. But then, um, and everyone knows the story, there's been you know, books and movies. Yeah. Um, she quit Ike's band, right. and she was for a while. I think she was struggling. <laughs> she was like yeah. changing beds in, in motels. Right. You know. uh, she was, you know, like really working hard. And then Roger Davies came into her life and um, put her together with some producers and songwriters, mm -hmm. and they recorded, you know, what's love got to do with it. Right. But at that moment, 
that, that she recorded, um, It's Only Love, uh, what's love got to do with it hadn't been released yet, I don't, I don't think, or at least it okay. hadn't climbed up the charts yet. Yeah. And she was touring with uh, Lionel Richie, okay. opening for Lionel Richie. Who was huge at the time. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. huge at the time. Yeah. And they played in Vancouver for one night, and um, I don't know the whole story, you'd have to ask Brian, but somehow Brian yeah. uh, got in touch with Roger, got Tina down to the studio, um, she spent an hour or so just, right. you know, singing it, and yeah. Bob's your uncle, you know, it's great. Right. Yeah, and it's it's great. It's you know, it's an unlikely duo. Yeah, and which which you know makes it even more that uh, that awesome because it's a fantastic uh, song. Then um, somebody. It's also yeah. I really like that song. Um, I mean, who doesn't like any of those songs on there? But um, is there any memorable story about that one? Not really. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's one of those lyrics. I read an interview with Bob Dylan um, <clears throat> not too long ago, where he said, you know, some of his lyrics, even he doesn't know what they mean, <laughs> right? But but they sound good, yeah. You know, which I thought was a really honest, interesting thing for him to say. And so that's a song where there's some lyrics in there. I I, I don't even really know what they mean, yeah. you know, but but they they sounded good. I mean, some of the lyric, um, if I remember. I used to play, uh, you know, before I was even in prison. I did a lot of nightclub stuff, okay. six nights a week in, in, in clubs yeah. in Vancouver. And um, used to always uh, wonder where these people came from on a, on a Wednesday night. You know, don't they have to go to work tomorrow morning? Yeah. And, and they're, you know, in, in a club, right. you know, getting hammered, dancing, trying, yeah. trying to meet someone. And um, I used to look out at them and just wonder who, who they were, where they, where they yeah. came from. and. Um, and so there's a couple of lines in there about, um, you know, uh, the winners or losers. I, I, I'm not really yeah. sure what it means, but it's kind of right. somewhat inspired by, yeah. by by those people. And I, I think the song itself kind of came f a little bit from a BTO song called Hey You. There's, okay. you know, some, you know, a little bit of inspiration yeah. drawn from that. Just not lyrically or melodically, but just the, yeah. the, the, the vibe of the song. Right. And one of the songs, I guess, that didn't make the cut for it being a single, which, I mean, it really should have as well, is Ain't Gonna Cry, like, which closes off that album. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that song as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a toss off. <laughs> more, oh, okay. more, more energy than. than, than right. Than Substance. Content. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
But what it is, right? Yeah. 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 So obviously, you know, it was huge and toured all over the world. Then he had to make a follow up, which to me, that's my favorite album, Into the Fire. It's, it's, it still is, but the odds were kind of stacked up against you guys because you sold tens of millions of records. Every song was successful. And then he kind of, which was smart to kind of go in a different direction. Uh, yeah, smart, smart yeah. or, or not. I mean, it was probably the right thing to do. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know where we could have gone after Reckless. Again, the trajectory you mentioned, where right. each of those four albums mm -hmm. up to and leading to Reckless, e each album got yeah. better because we got better. Right. And then I'm not sure in that pop rock vein where we could have gone from there. And Brian had, um, in 85, had done you know, Live Aid. Yeah. And... Uh, Amnesty International and you know some of these gigantic right. stadium fundraisers, you know with U2 and the Bill and Springsteen and Peter Gabriel and uh, the Police and and so on, and and you know those guys write especially you know U2 and yeah. and um, and the Police, you know are writing very meaningful songs, lyrics yeah. with right. you know deep, you know you know arrangements that are very yeah. innovative and so on, and and Brian came back from that tour with the, the idea that we needed to be a little more that way, to, to, okay. to be thoughtful yeah. in our lyrics and maybe write not just about, you know, boys and girls, girls yeah. but, but about, you know, politics and, and, and uh, human suffering and so on. So we went down that rabbit hole. And I'm not sure we were the right guys to write those songs. Mm. Okay. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's your favorite album, and I've had, yeah. I've had you know, people tell me that. Um, it's, but it's not my favorite album. Okay. And I, I remember, uh, again, reading an interview with John Lennon once. Um, I think they asked him, you know, what comes to mind yeah. when you hear Strawberry Fields on the radio? And he said, uh, the session. Like, I, yeah. I remember being in the studio, you know, looking at the other right. guys and, and, and playing my guitar. Yeah. You know, so um, when I think of the album Into the Fire, yeah. it, it's sort of, it was mine and Brian's divorce album. We, right. We, we didn't, our relationship deteriorated. I mean, thankfully, a few years later, we ended up, and, yeah. we're, and today we're the best of friends again. Right. But we went, that album was our, our divorce album. Okay. And we weren't getting along. Right. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, just for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. A whole bunch of personal stuff going on. Right. And we just soldiered on and wrote these songs. and Just um, to get it done, pretty much? Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. well, I, I'm not going to speak for Brian. Oh, no, I right. mean, I mean, we, you know, we've never in our lives have we ever sat down and said, today let's write a bad song. Well, of course. You know, you yeah. always try to do your best right. work. Right. But, I mean, it just, it was work, mm -hmm. you know. And I think because yeah. we were chasing something that maybe wasn't 100% sincere or 100% us, yeah. we were trying to trying to be a little more U2, a little more yeah. Peter Gabriel. Um, so, I th I th you know, when I do go back and revisit, there are some things on there that I, yeah. I have to admit I'm, I'm like somewhat fond of. But, yeah. but the album itself just... Like John Lennon said, what do you remember about right. that album? I, I remember just it. <laughs> just the, the stress of yeah. of um, not enjoying right. spending time with Brian for that year, yeah. and, and mutual, I'm sure. I, I, I was not right. pleasant company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think just because you guys were just burnt out for just? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we had. I mean, cause we was had it five albums in six years? We at that worked point, really right? hard. We really, yeah. you know, earned the success of Reckless. We, you know, yeah. busted our, our humps to. To get there, yeah, I think we were just right. at the end of our tether, yeah. and it was time. 
Yeah. You know, time just for a change. I mean, Brian went on and you know uh, made a couple of great records with Mutt Lang. Right. And and I did some work with Aerosmith and yeah. others. And you know, right. I, I think it was really good that yeah. we got away from each other. There yeah. yeah. Now was that like the record company's kind of decision just to release into the virus? You know, like was it maybe two years after? Th- um, reckless, eighty-seven, right? Okay. So maybe I guess th- two and a half years, three. You want to take a break, but you can't because you got to just kind of top the success of reckless, I, I think, right? I think artists are at that point because yeah. records, you know. Yeah, you got pressure you, from your record yeah. company, pressure from your manager, right? Just pressure you put on yourself. Yeah. I mean, again, speaking, uh, just you know, yourself, right. I'm not an artist, but I just, yeah. you know, this you get on a on a treadmill, you right? Know, and and um, nobody lets you off. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the songs that you really liked on that album? On Into the Fire? Yeah. Um, I like Heat of the Night. Yeah, that's my favorite song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't love how it got recorded. Again, okay. we were using um, you know, samples, and right. that was sort of the new technology, mm-hmm. emulator keyboard, yeah. and, and, and right. Yamaha. Yeah. You played on that track, right, I believe? I, I don't know if I did. That was, uh, again, um, I, I did some playing on that album. Right. But um, I'm not sure I was even credited for all of it. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm on that particular track. Right. Um, I, uh, Victim of Love. Yeah. Uh, I, I think is powerful. Um, and um, Hearts on Fire, which was actually that was for Reckless. Wasn't that was the, that was the last song we wrote for Reckless, but it didn't go okay. on the album. Right, because it definitely sounds like a Reckless song. It was song. a Reckless, it was yeah. a Reckless leftover from Reckless. Right, yeah, yeah it definitely it, sounds like it. Then yeah. the rest of the song is more, uh, you know, a little bit, not techno, but right. some elements, you know. Yeah. yeah. The title track into the fire is also one that I really like. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I mean, again, it's an attempt at being you know, thoughtful yeah, and right. writing more than just about boys and girls. Yeah, was that something like you said? You, there was a lot of like you know, stress and tension. Was that something that you, like Brian wanted to write? You said you know, meaningful, thoughtful songs like you two and Peter Gabriel. Was that something that you wanted to do as well with I, him? I, I didn't disagree. You yeah, didn't, no, okay. no, I, I'm equally 
guilty of right. you know going down that same rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, neither of us fought it. I mean, right. we we thought it was the the next thing we should do, yeah. like just try something different. Right. Yeah. And then only the strong survive, which I guess originally was going to be on Top Gun. Soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my regrets. So right. We, we, again, that a guy flew up from L.A. with yeah. a you know top secret <laughs> video cassette right. and played us the rough cuts of, of the film. Yeah. And we wrote, uh, and I think we had access to the script briefly too. And um, so some of the lines in that song were, yeah. were lifted from the from the script or inspired by it. Yeah. Um, and they loved it. They mm -hmm. they wanted to put it in the film. Right. And which w was great because I think the album sold twenty yeah, million copies. Yeah, yeah. We had one of the best selling ones of all time. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah don't remind me.
So it was in the film. It was going to go on the soundtrack album. Yeah. And at the last minute, uh, Brian was dating a girl at the time um, who's still one of his best friends, and I, yeah. I, I adore her too. She's, right. she's wonderful. But um, she was, you know, 18 or 19 at the time and very um, principled. Okay. And she said, Are you sure you want to have a song in a movie about war? Right. And, and so Brian pulled the song off, hmm. off the album. Do you know if, like, was it Danger Zone? Did, did that replace it? Or was that going to be on the I, album I, as well? I, I, don't you don't know. Know. I don't know. You don't what, want to think about I, it? Right? I, I don't even know. I just, I just <laughs> right. know our song came yeah. off and something else went on. Right. Well, it's still a powerful song. I mean, it made it into yeah. the album. But, yeah. I, I, but I still would like to get those $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah, so then you had, I guess, your split from Brian. Brian, I guess, took some time off to and eventually recorded Waking Up the Neighbors, which... Yeah. He used some of your songs as well yeah, on we, there. Yeah, I mean, we didn't split right after okay. um, uh, the, fire. the Fire. We, we continued writing a little bit. For, okay. for the, the next album. album. Right. And then it was partway into that okay. that we kind of just hit a wall. And, right. And, and um, I mean, I just had uh, a child and okay. becoming a parent. Yeah, kinda, it's tough, yeah. <laughs> you know, messes with your, right. your schedule whole, and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, you can't focus, you know, yeah. Priorities. And I just decided, you know what, I, I, I'm kind of done, you know. Right. So I, I just pulled the plug and, right. and, and, and Brian and Mutt were, you know, well underway anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that album, you know, took off, obviously, everything I do, I do for you. And yeah. like, but besides that song, it sounded like, because Mutt Lang worked with Def Leppard, it yeah. sounded like a Def Leppard album. Yeah, well, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that because I mean, you know, they're they're great as well. But it's what it pretty much sounded like. It was, yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, Mutt's got a sound. Yeah. 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 Um, so a, so after that, you went on to work with Ira Smith, and uh, some I've looked at your website, which is fabulous, by the way. Again, a um, couple other artists that I like, Canadian artists, yeah. that don't get really much attention here. Gowan, you wrote a song with Gowan, yeah. And actually, I had him on like about a month ago because now he lead singer of Sticks, yeah. But I knew his solo work because I went to college up in Buffalo and lived up there. So yeah. like being in Detroit. This stuff trickled down, so I was able to hear it because none of his solo work was able to buy here. Yeah, and it's really good. Too. Yeah, it's 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 fabulous. Yeah. So, um, what was that like experience? Well, just with him? A, I mean, first of all, he's a lovely guy. He's so nice. He's, yeah, he's funny. Yeah, he he's I mean, hugely talented. Right. You know, he's an amazing piano player, a great yeah. singer. Um, I, I I enjoyed him. I mean, right. you know, we spent a week maybe, and and he came up to Vancouver, and we just. Sat right. and I think we wrote two or three songs, and um, I, I enjoyed him a lot. Right, and I, he's still a friend. Yeah, good. Cause I, I kind of wish that his solo stuff was more prevalent prevalent here because all you know is uh, him being in Sticks and kind of replacing Dennis DeYoung, and so it's kind of like a you know factions of you know the you know fans of. But their latest album, Sticks, is really really good, called The Mission, and you know it, it, it's good. But he. Uh, when we did our interview, I think half of it we spoke about hockey, like half the, half the yeah, interview, because yeah. you're a big hockey fan as well. And then uh, the Paleos, yeah, the Rock and High, which I absolutely you know. Uh, Dirty Water is also one of oh, my favorite. I yeah. love that song, one of my favorites. And yeah. then um, Eyes of a Stranger. Eyes of a Stranger is so amazing. Such, yeah, yeah. Su such a great song. Um, also, can't find any of their stuff here. It's yeah. I no, mean, they were uh, really sadly underappreciated. Yeah, man. they they were. So so good, right? And of course, Bob Rock, who oh, yeah. went on to do work with so uh, Metallica much. and everything like yeah, that. They're, yeah, they're so good. But um, then getting back with Brian, was that kind of like nothing ever changed? 
or was well, that kind of a different you know, rule set up again? Or just, no, no, just no. It's well, like there never, and there, there never were, you know. Right. I mean, um, I think, you know, we we hardly spoke for. I, I mean, I've lost track. I'm, I'm going to say five or ten years, but right. you know, we we hardly spoke at all. Okay. Um, just went in our separate ways, and then um, I, I think that as Brian toured and met people and did interviews and and so yeah. on. Um, and I, I don't say this to, to flatter myself, but right. people would would say even after yeah. waking up the neighbors and you know the work right. with Mutt, people yeah. would say, you know, our our favorite stuff is the stuff you wrote with Jim. I think he yeah. I think he heard that <laughs> often enough. Yeah, that that um, you know, he he kind of you know rekindled or initiated kind of a, a, a few get-togethers. Yeah. But wh what he did was actually, I had after. Um, Aerosmith and a few other things, I, I kind of burned out. So after Brian and I mm. parted ways, about five years after that, I, I hit a wall anyway. Okay. I, I got really burned out. Right. Because uh, I, I said yes to everybody. I mean, okay. my website kind of Oh, yeah, you says can see everybody, yeah. <laughs> I wrote with hundreds of artists. I, I mean, th there were years where I, I would spend a week with an artist. I, they'd arrive yeah. on Monday and leave on Friday or Saturday. I'd have Sunday off and start again, you know. And I, I, there was one year I, I did that 52 weeks. I literally didn't wow. take a break. And any time I tried to take a break, yeah. I would put a couple of weeks of my home, of holidays yeah. in my calendar. Right. And then an a &R guy or a manager would call and say, oh, please, can you squeeze my band in? Yeah. Anyway, I'd end up working 50. Yeah. I just got totally burned out. Right. No, no, um, no mystery there. And so I stopped writing. I, okay. I actually literally took five years or, or more okay. off. And, right. and it was great because I spent... A lot of time with my son. That's good. I did volunteer work at the school. I was a crossing guard, <laughs> you know. And right. Yeah. And just it was actually a really good time in my life. And then uh, Brian sort of got in touch again, yeah. and there was one thing he'd been asked to write a song for a uh, theme song for a James Bond movie, okay. and asked me if I wanted to help right. with that. And I, I thought, yeah. yeah, I'll give that sure. a go. And I, but I, I hadn't written a note for for a number of years. Right. But I, I sat down at the piano and. Just on my own in my living room, started to write yeah. something, and in, it ended up not getting okay. getting used. Right. We ended up writing a song, but I thought, you know what, this is fun. Yeah. You know, I, I got inspired, right? And it was kind of my my road back in. Yeah. So, and then Brian and I would keep sending Brian would keep sending me things like, "Do you yeah. want to contribute to this song? Right. Do you want to contribute to this song?" Yeah. And it just kind of evolved back into uh, writing a relationship right. again. That's good. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned before, like how everyone would come up to you and say, oh, the stuff you do with Brian was bad. Like, I have to agree as well. <laughs> but, um, the, um, going back even, you know, further, um, some of the work that you didn't do with Brian, which I didn't mention, Heart. Yeah. What, what about Love? Um, that was originally written for the band Toronto, right? Yeah. I mean, that's another one of those, you know, every song has a, has a story, story kind yeah. of thing.
So there was a band from the city of Toronto called Toronto. Toronto. <laughs> great, a terrible name for a band, yeah. but anyway. <laughs> right. uh, they were great folks, a really talented band. I mean, they had some, they never really got traction in the US, but they yeah. had hits in Canada. Right. And, and they were a good band. I, I liked their, their singles. Um, they were being produced by a guy named Steve Smith, I think, um, who had done some work with Bob Marley. Okay. And, um, so their label hired Steve to do an album in Toronto, and Steve was somehow uh, aware of me and, and asked if I would yeah. would come and write some songs with the band, which which I did. And right. I went to Toronto for a couple of weeks yeah. and sat with um, uh, Brian Allen and Sharon Alton. The, the they were a couple actually, yeah. the, the two guitar players okay. in the band, and we wrote four or five songs, and one of them was "What About Love," and then. Um, the band went in the studio, and I stuck around for a bunch of that, mm -hmm. and they recorded, I don't know, 15, 15 songs, okay. maybe more. And then the record company and the producer, I don't know who, kind of sat down and went, okay, yeah. we've got 15 songs, we only need 12, right. and they picked 12. And What About Love wasn't one of them. Mm. So What About Love just went on the shelf. And yeah. I have, over the course of my songwriting career, kept copies of everything. I have every right. every first draft, every demo, every yeah. everything, you know, I've I've got a box of cassettes and yeah. and th dats and reel to reels. Right. That's the only song I don't have a copy oh, of. Oh wow. <laughs> so we wrote it in Brian and Sharon's basement, uh, did a demo. Um, I've asked Brian Allen for a copy. He says he doesn't have one. Oh. I, I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, never never did get one. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, because I didn't have a copy of the demo, I literally forgot about that song. Okay. It just it just yeah, it just disappeared into the right. ether. Went back to Vancouver a couple of years later. So that would have been eighty two. I did the album with with Toronto. Eighty five. I get a phone call from Don Grierson, mm. who's an A&R guy at um, Capitol Records, and says. Um, 
got some really good news for you. Heart have just released uh, your song "What About Love" as the first single from their new album. It's like, yeah. what? What? <laughs> <laughs> and then, long story short, um, the record label that Toronto were on, yeah. called Solid Gold Records, a Canadian label, they went bankrupt. Maybe from not choosing singles or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they went bankrupt, and um, somehow EMI Publishing uh, acquired their catalog mm -hmm. as part of the solvency right. uh, or in insolvency uh, deal. And a publisher at EMI named Mike McCarty, who had actually been Bob Ezrin's uh, assistant. Um, Bob produced all the Alice Cooper, okay. co-wrote the Alice Cooper stuff, Pink Floyd, The Wall. Right. Mike had started as a young guy working under Bob Ezrin and then went into publishing. He was a publisher with EMI. And Mike took it upon himself after EMI acquired Solid Gold's catalog to go through every mm -hmm. master, every demo, every song in, right. in the vault. I mean, and he came across What About Love and thought, whoa, this sounds like a single. And he sent it to, to Gerson. Gerson played it for Hart. Um, I didn't know the whole backstory until I read um, Anne and Nancy's book. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's an autobiography or a biography. It was an authorized. They sat down yeah. with a, an author. Right. And, and there's a chapter on What About Love. Uh, they hated the song. <laughs> okay. uh, the producer, Rick Knowles, I think, brought it. Gerson gave it to Rick. Rick okay. played it for the band. They, right. they said, no, no. Not, not our yeah. cup of tea at all. And they refused to record it. Wow. And Rick said, look, how about record it? If you still hate it, we don't, yeah. we don't have to put it on the record. Right. You know, so they recorded it. They actually um, uh, copied, not the demo, because I, I, as I said, I don't have a copy of the demo, but Hart, sorry, Toronto yeah. did record the song in the studio. So there was a recording of Toronto. Oh, Beyond the basement right. demo, there was an actual recording that would have gone on the album had it had it worked out that way. So Hart worked from that, and literally copied the demo note for mm -hmm. note. Even Sharon's guitar solo, the mm -hmm. Toronto guitar solo, right. Nancy played it, or was it Howard Leese? Maybe played it exactly. So, yeah. um, so that was like one of those surprises. Like what? Right. I, I didn't even know they recorded it. Well, and it's it's probably my favorite Hart song. It, it, it's you know. Because obviously in the seventies they had a different sound, and they come out with that yeah. album. And I interviewed Martin Page a couple of years ago, yeah. and he co-wrote these dreams. Yeah. So that's an, another song that just totally changed the landscape of the band. But yeah, great yeah. song. Yeah, totally. Are there any like artists that you've worked with that you weren't fans of beforehand? Because you said you say yes to every, everybody, and then afterwards you became a fan of them. Not because of the song you wrote, just because well, after listening to them. I mean, that's a real tough question. Um, there, there were bands I didn't know, not that I wasn't a fan, not that right. I like, didn't yeah. like them. Right, you just weren't aware of them. They just weren't on my radar. Yeah, right. There's been a, there been a few of those where um, you know, came away with, with huge respect, like uh, Dan Huff from Giant. Um, I wasn't really aware of their work, but right. um, I spent a week with Dan and hugely impressed with, with his work. And of course, he you know, went on to do work with Michael Jackson and yeah. Shania Twain, and, and he's still a, a, a major force in, right. in the industry as a writer and a player. So, um, I mean, I, I was peripherally aware of Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> right. uh, you, you can't really not be. Yeah. But, but I, wasn't a, I wasn't a fan. Yeah. Not, not that I didn't like him, I just right. you know, hadn't Didn't really listen to his stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
and you know after working with him you know came away with huge respect and and, and affection he's just a wonderful human right. being and you know despite the sort of buffoon image that right. that was TV portrayed show, yeah. on the on the TV show he's actually a really really smart man you know he's right. no dummy at all he's a yeah. clever guy and funny right so funny yeah that, um another canadian artist uh, or group i should say last tiger yeah yeah Spoke with Alan few like a couple years couple oh, years ago. Great, great. Yeah, really, really nice guy. I love, I love. Yeah, guys. and that album was unbelievable. You know, hits after hits. Um, how did they get in contact with you? To well, that? they were literally a garage band. They, they right. were, they were yeah. like an unknown. Uh, I mean, they were young. Sam was keyboard player was like eighteen yeah. or something. Right. They were a really young band. They had um, uh, been playing clubs around. Toronto area had yeah. written a few songs. Uh, Dean Cameron at Capitol Records in Canada, right. in our guy, uh, he, uh, they came to his attention. He he liked them. He yeah. he signed them, and then um, he was going to send them in the studio with a producer whose name I forget, a Toronto area producer, um, and that guy was going to produce the album. But Dean got in touch with me and asked if yeah. I would do some writing with them. Right. He, he thought their songs were were good. There was an album okay. there, but he right. thought we just need maybe a couple of singles. Okay. Yeah, that maybe radio yeah. songs. And so I flew out to Toronto and um, met the band, and um, uh, they they, they kind of wanted they were reluctant to co-write. And okay. Which I mean, I could probably yeah. say that in almost every case. I mean, Aerosmith yeah. were reluctant to co-write. Right. I mean, a lot of bands don't want to write. Yeah. But they get to a certain point in their career, or in Glass Tiger's case, the very beginning of their career, yeah. and the record company might say, you, you know, you need a, you, you need, need some help. So they, right. they, it kind of gets forced, forced upon um, them, yeah. and they're not always happy about it. So Glass Tiger weren't really sure, but I flew out to Toronto, spent a, uh, a day with them in their yeah. rehearsal space, and um, uh, just I, I, I took one of their songs and said, mm -hmm. look. Here, here's what I would do. Yeah. Here's and I sort of rearranged it, uh, wrote some parts, and at the end of the day, they liked my style okay. of working. I, I I enjoyed what they were doing. Right. Enjoyed them as people, and they agreed to yeah. to um, do some writing with me. So a week or two later, they flew out to Vancouver, and we spent a week. And the very first day that they arrived, we wrote pretty much. Yeah, we wrote Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, like 90%. You take my breath away. Oh, things it's you. 
came back the next morning and I sent them home with a cassette back to their hotel. They came back the next morning and Alan doesn't remember it this way. <laughs> honest to God, this is what happens. Right. As far as I remember, is they said, we, we don't like it. It's not It's mm. not our sound. Right. So we spent the rest of the week writing some other things and another song called Someday. We mm-hmm. wrote that. And then on the last day, I said, let's have one more look at that don't forget me when I'm mm-hmm. gone, and we, we kind of finished it. Right. And then they went back to Toronto. Uh, record company absolutely loved Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone and Someday. So again, it was one of those almost, what about love with heart? You know, the, the band didn't like the song, right. but the record company kind of said, you know what, record yeah. it. And it ended up you know, being mm-hmm. their, their big single. Biggles, yeah, and uh, you know, Brian sings back up on, on the yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. How, um, how did that happen? Well, we we were in Toronto. Uh, the Juno Awards were happening. Okay. Brian was in town, and Glass Tiger were in the middle of mixing and recording. Right. And I just kind of—I mean, Brian graciously offered. Yeah. I might I might have twisted his arm a little <laughs> bit, but he just came in. We didn't really have a an idea where he would sing. Yeah. And the song has a, some weird modulations at the end. It it wasn't probably not the best song right. we could have had him sing on. Uh, yeah. Just. Um, but but he's on there. I mean, right. I mean, hardly noticeable if you unless you. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, T- totally. Yeah. Okay. Um, now with all all the songs like you, you've written, um, I guess you can call them your babies, right? You know, because but what would be like your top five favorite oh, songs? I, I know, I know, it's a loaded real, question. I know. Really <laughs> tough one. Yeah. Um. One song I I wasn't fond of, but but grew to like, and it was on. Uh, you might have to help me here. It's either on "You Want It, You Got It" or "Cuts Like a Knife." Cuts Like a Knife, I think, uh, called "I'm Ready." Okay, yeah. Which is a you know high energy rock right. song. Yeah. And Brian and I used to always joke again about one of the songs. We, we have no idea what the lyrics mean. Yeah. Just, you know, and it's, it, it wasn't it wasn't our favorite song okay. that we'd ever written. We just thought, right. eh, you know, put it on the album. Yeah. It, you know, just a bit of a toss off. So uh, so there it is on that album, and it's a rock track. So a couple of years later, um, 87, I forget, Brian does MTV Unplugged album. Okay. And um, that album was arranged and produced by a guy named Patrick Leonard, who'd, okay. who'd done work with Madonna and right. others. Really talented guy. Yeah.
Patrick helped Brian decide which yeah, right. of all the songs Brian had yeah. written and recorded up to that point. Right. It's like what what songs would most lend themselves to uh, yeah. an unplugged yeah. uh, concept. And Patrick said, "I want to hear everything you've ever ever done." So right. they went through Brian's entire catalog. Wow. And Patrick spotted, "I'm ready." Yeah. I said, "You know that that song would work as a ballad." And so they they rearranged it. It's okay. got. Um, uh, strings mm -hmm. and uh, an Irish instrument called Julian pipes, mm -hmm. and when I, I, I was blown away when I heard it, because mm -hmm. it, it completely reimagined yeah. a song that I had been. It might have been mm -hmm. the song I was least fond of in our okay. in our catalog, oh, right. and, and and it became one of my favorites. Right. So, wow. so that that's um, that's one for sure. I really yeah. enjoy hearing that just because of of how it was reimagined. Um, I don't know. There's probably some really obscure ones. It's not necessarily the hits that yeah. that that I would be fond of. Maybe right. some of the the lesser songs that that Brian and I maybe put some extra work into yeah. and didn't really approach them as right. as radio songs. Um, I mean, I've got fondness for Summer '69 just because you know. Um, I mean, Brian and I co-wrote it. I don't, I don't mean yeah. to take undue <laughs> credit, but right. but that was my summer. You know, 1969. Okay. I was right. I was 17. Okay. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of me invested in mm. in that song, yeah. uh, lyrically. And again, not not. No, of course, Brian yeah. didn't contribute, but right. 
But I have some fondness for, for that song. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to give you my top five, you know, because you don't really care. But, <laughs> but uh, like I mentioned before, Heat of the Night is like my, my f- favorite song. And I didn't really ask you kind of like the background about that. So I know you said, you know, you don't remember too much about making that well, uh, I, I, record. But well, that song I kind of do because, again, we, we each song on that album, we kind of discussed a theme. Like we talked about what we're going to write about. Like Native Son is obviously yeah. about um, uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, amazing drummer in okay. in Vancouver named Duris Maxwell, is um, uh, part Native Indian. And I was having a conversation yeah. with him one day uh, about his heritage, and he said you should read about um, a tribe called the uh, Nez Perces, who were a tribe in Dakota or Montana or somewhere who were driven off their lands yeah. by the for the Calvary, and uh, Chief Joseph. And so I, I, I went to the library and found a book and read, okay. read about it. And this is before the internet, so you couldn't, well, yeah. you, you couldn't Google. You had to, right, you of had course. To, you had to go yeah. to the library. Yeah. <laughs> and I was fascinated with, with the story of Chief Joseph. And so Native Son came from that. Right. So Heat of the Night um, was not verbatim, but, but inspired by the uh, Orson Welles film. I don't think Orson directed it, but he was an actor uh, called um, uh, The Third Man. Okay. Yeah, black and white spy film. Mm. Uh, very uh, noir. Yeah.
so that's sort of and Brian and I had been to Berlin too I think um, when the wall was still up this is before yeah. the wall came down right. and we went through Checkpoint Charlie yeah. and and again back then um, West Berlin was very vibrant and, yeah. and you know hip and, right. and cultured and then you, you go to East Berlin and it was almost like going from color to black and white. Wow. Okay. It was a drab, and yeah. everyone looked sad. And then you come back to West Berlin, it was like, yeah. And and so that again, that that somewhat influenced the the darkness of of, of that song. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's yeah much darker than anything he put out yeah. up to that point. Yeah. yeah. So, um, now do you remember where you were like the first time you heard like one of the songs you written on the radio? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So the first song. Uh, I ever heard on the radio was a Prism song. Okay. Called Spaceship Superstar. with the band but there were five of us in a rental car I mean we're talking real low budget you yeah. know, like cheap motels right. rental cars going from gig to gig we opened for Foreigner in Portland Oregon we opened for Hart in Medford Oregon um, uh, Oregon or Washington a anyway right. uh, yeah. uh, Pacific Northwest yeah <laughs> and, and so we were driving around that part of the, okay. the country and I think we were in Portland think uh, on our way to or from the gig and I was driving and Spaceship Superstar came on the radio right and I, I went through a red light <laughs> oh. Unfortunately, it was like later at night, night there, there, yeah there was no traffic right <laughs> but yeah that uh, that was it was a thrill oh, wow okay what about I mean now you've you know, heard all your songs you know 
But like, where is like the most interesting place? I mean, I I, I actually hear my songs quite a quite a yeah. bit. Like I'll hear them at you know CVS drugstore right. or yeah. in an airport or you know yeah. elevator um, right um, uh, in an Uber yeah yeah. So I mean, it's it's not the thrill you know, right. The, the thrill is long gone. Uh, there's, that, yeah. that, that, there's that. First time for everything, and of then course. everything, everything yeah. after that's not it's never quite the same. Right. But uh, it's always kind of like you know, okay, yeah, cool, yeah, that's one of mine. Right. Yeah. You ever like when, when was one of the first times you heard it, like in a story, ever go to someone like, hey, that's me, I wrote this. Oh Say, no, hey, that, I wrote that. No, no, that's not, <laughs> not my style. Right, right. And then one of the most recent like projects you did with Brian was Pretty Woman. Yeah. Musical. Um, big fan of the of the movie. I haven't haven't seen the show, but um, how did that come about, and how Difficult was it, kind of, just to like, kind of toss that soundtrack aside to work on original stuff. Well, I wasn't that familiar with the soundtrack, okay. and, and and I mean, I saw the film right, right. thirty years ago. Yeah, um, didn't make a study of the soundtrack other than you know the Roy Orbison song, which is you know sort of undeniable, unavoidable. Right. Um, Brian had been, you know, he's done a lot of different things. He's done. Yeah. Movie soundtracks and, right. and the idea of doing a Broadway musical it was sort of been on his radar for a number yeah. of years, and he he tried a couple of times to okay. to get involved in in things here and there, and then he heard that a Pretty Woman was being made into a musical, and he reached out to some people that he knew might be connected, okay. and he sort of knew the guy that knew the guy that knew the guy, <laughs> and right. we ended up getting a, a a meeting with Jerry Mitchell, right. who ended up directing the yeah. musical he, with yeah. him. He did like Billy Elliot, right, and did all the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Kinky Boots. And yeah. The, yeah. We met him in a, in a pizza joint in, in London okay. and had a chat and, yeah. you know, said we trusted. And so we met again a month later yeah. back in New York. And he wasn't expecting us to actually, at the second lane, any music. Right. But we, in the meantime, had, it was a little bit cheeky of us. We, mm. we wrote a couple of songs. Okay. Um, they ended up having to be, all, you know, especially the lyrics had to be retooled yeah. later. But, um, but they were sort of audition pieces, and so we played those for Jerry in his apartment on, in Chelsea, and Jerry was there, and J. F. Lawton, who wrote the the original movie script, and Paula Wagner, who was the who is the producer of right. the, of the play. So we played it for them, our our, our song demos, yeah. and and they they loved it, yeah. and they basically hired us. Well, pretty much on the spot. Yeah. How many songs did you have to write? Uh, I think I've lost track. I think <laughs> I think we wrote forty to get twenty. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it, it was brutal. It's the the hardest yeah. work I've ever done as a songwriter. Right. Really, I mean, just yeah. uh, we'd write a song, put our hearts and souls into it, yeah. and Jerry would be okay for a while. It would survive for a couple of rehearsals and right. then he'd say, you know what? Yeah, change it. Not yeah. quite right. And 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 I would disagree with him vehemently yeah. on a few occasions. But uh, in his defense he was pretty much always right. Right. Hmm. He always got a better song out of us. Okay. Is it would that be something you'd want to do again? No. <laughs> I I'm, I mean I, I remember um, finding some letters not in my grandmother's attic, but they were right. letters that her brother had written her. Yeah. In uh, 1918, from the First World War in France, this one letter he wrote actually to his younger brother. So um, he had been drafted; he was sent over there. Okay. Um, and uh, his younger brother wasn't old enough for the for the draft, but his younger brother was like, could not wait to be old enough to go and join the right. join the war. I, I mean, of course, the older brother was there, yeah. and he wrote and said, you know, 
don't join. Whatever you do, don't come <laughs> over here. Right. You know, it, he wasn't allowed to say why. Yeah. But just whatever you do, don't don't join right. the army. Um, I kind of feel like that. Like whatever you do, I would tell somebody, don't do it. Don't write R a musical. Yeah. It's like it's so much work. Well, yeah. Now I, I can imagine like even if you wanted to do it again, you and Brian, you can kind of incorporate Brian's music into show. I know like, they've done that with like Billy Joel. Yeah, those are called jukebox musicals. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that could be something that you guys. Um, could do. I, yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Right. I mean, it, it all starts with s someone having a vision. I right. Mean, I mean, we we got really lucky. There's so many shows written that, yeah. that don't even make it to Broadway, right. let alone, and some of them make it to Broadway. Yeah. I mean, my friends, the Go-Go's, right. had a show yeah. called Head Over Heels. I had one, I had one song in it. And I mean, I, I saw the show. I, I really enjoyed it, but right. but it, it didn't last. It, it, yeah. it closed. They they just didn't make a go of it. Right. Yeah. The, the so Billy Joel one too. Less. I mean, a, a little bit, but it's yeah. it's hard making shows. Yeah. yeah. And Paul Simon had one. Right. Uh, um, Cape Man that, that didn't fly. Right. I think Sting is struggling with uh, the last. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's I've done it. It's not easy. Right. Yeah. So like, obviously, when you first started, you know, songwriting. You had to, I guess, seek out people, right, to give you songs. When did that change? When people kind of approached you to write songs? Um, I, I guess, I mean, in Canada, a little mm -hmm. earlier, like okay. uh, Steve Smith getting in touch with me to write with Toronto as right. early, uh, he, he was aware of uh, some of my early work with Brian, I guess. But probably after cuts like a knife and reckless is when. Right. Um, and our guys and managers right. would look at the small print and go, oh, oh you know, okay. Jim Valens. Right. You know. Yeah, because you mentioned Last Tiger before, so I'd imagine that's yeah. probably right after Reckless came out. Yeah, so, so that, that's when the phone started ringing. Yeah. And, then, and then when I split from Brian, um, when I was working with Brian, like, like yeah. the, the whole Reckless thing, right. I mean, that was a whole year of just me and Brian almost every day. Right. And then into the fire, Brian would was still touring the Reckless album as we were writing Into the okay. Fire. Right. Um, but he wanted an agreement from me that I wouldn't write with anybody else. Because okay. he wanted all my ideas, ideas. for whatever the next album yeah. was. I, mean, I, I, I don't know why I, why I agreed to that. Because right. he would go out for you know, a, right. month, a month yeah. and, and you know, I could have written, I had to turn okay. down all kinds of stuff. Right. Anyway, after we split, yeah. um, then I, the floodgates kind of opened. Oh. Every, everybody and their dog yeah. wanted to, to work with me, and, and I said yes to everything. Right. And then, as I mentioned, basically to it. Right. And then when Brian was touring, and I imagine you didn't go on tour with him at all. No. So you said I did once. We, um, it was actually uh, early Reckless, because I remember the song called She's Only Happy When, when She's Dancing. dancing. Yeah. That we wrote about two lines of lyric in a hotel in Amsterdam. So okay. it was during the you know it, it was the Cuss Like a Knife right. tour, writing for Reckless. Um, but we were starting to write for Reckless, okay. and Brian said, "Why don't you come out on tour, tour. with me?" Yeah. So I, I flew to Europe, and uh, it was a he, the band were on a bus, just okay. basically going from Amsterdam to Paris to you know wherever else, and I went for three weeks, I think. And we, we mm. got no writing done. I mean, every day was, right. you know, sound check, rehearsals, yes, of course. Um, uh, interviews. Uh, we yeah. literally wrote about four lines of lyric the whole time. So it, would, it was pointless. Right. And then when, I guess, you went home and he was still touring, and that was before, obviously, the Internet. You, c you couldn't, like, email each other. No. So had that 
did them just snail mail or just no, use no, I mean, wait till he got back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't really conducive to right. long distance collaboration. Okay, uh, final question. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas songs, and I'm Jewish and I hate Christmas songs, <laughs> is uh, Reggae Christmas. Obviously, it's yeah. great, and Christmas Time. Yeah. Both great. I lo- love hearing it on the radio. Um, how f- easy, hard, fun re- was writing those songs? Um, cr- Christmas Time was, I-, I enjoyed that. We waited all through the year for the day. to or right. we just decided to yeah. but anyway you know very sort of drawing on our Beatle influences mm-hmm. and, and you know yeah. um, and Clear Mountain did a great job of, of um, recording it mixing it most of it was done in my basement studio okay. and, and drums I think were done later at the power station yeah th- I, I like that song it's a yeah. good Christmas song and Reggae Christmas um, so I wrote that song um, on my own and then Brian later uh, contributed to the bridge okay. But it started off as uh, 1979. I was working with BTO okay. um, in, in a studio in Vancouver, 
And the studio manager came in one day and said, um, I got a favorite. We had, we had the studio booked for a whole month. Right. So, so it, it's called a lockout. So okay. we had the whole studio. Uh, manager said, look, I got a favor to ask. I, I need two days. I need the studio for two days. If you guys mm -hmm. can take two days off, um, Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr are flying up from L.A. Okay. I think Ringo had tax issues where he right. couldn't record in the U.S., okay. so he flew up to Canada for two days. And I said, um, okay, happy to give you two days yeah. on the condition I, I get to meet Ringo. <laughs> right. So I did get to meet Ringo. Um, I, I met him again several more times yeah. a few years later, which were much more pleasant than the right. first time I met him, right. when he and Harry were, were both pretty messed up on okay. cocaine and cognac. Right. So that they were a little, not unpleasant, but yeah. not warm and fuzzy. But anyway, they, they were had come up to record um, a Christmas single, right. which I don't even know what, what song it was. It must be out there somewhere. Um, and so they came up and recorded this Christmas song, and they said, you know, we need a B-side. Right. Back then it was yeah, 45. Yeah, right. And I said, I'll write you a B-side. Yeah. And they went, really? You know, so I went home, yeah. literally stayed up all night. all night. I mean, I did not sleep. I, right. I, I wrote and recorded yeah. a song. Came back the next day, played it for them. Yeah. It was called Reggae Christmas. Yeah. Uh, because I think they said they, they, they wanted it to be a reggae song. So, okay. so I wrote Reggae right. Christmas. And um, they listened to it in the control room. Mm -hmm. They said they liked it. Mm -hmm. I left it with them, but they didn't record, record it. But they ended up writing their own song called Ringo Reggae. And um, so it was a little disappointing. Uh, uh, they didn't steal my idea, but they... Right, yeah. but yeah. Um, and then I did a demo of it on my own, and then mm -hmm. years later, Brian... Yeah. Recorded, recorded it with the additional bridge, so that's where that song came. They from. were both fun songs, yeah. but the, Jim, this was great. Thank you for oh, your time pleasure. today. Um, go check out jimvalance.com because all the songs ever written have a story on there. They have the lyrics, and some have little videos. So it's um, definitely a treat, and it's it's take a couple hours because it's it's pretty intensive. But Jim, thanks so much. Thanks, Noel. Once again, a special thanks to Jim Valance for stopping by today. Go check out his website, jimvalance.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page of Living Mind on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud, Podbean, and it's also on Spotify. On Spotify, just search for Living My Youth, all one word. Go to tpublic.com for all your Living My Youth merchandise t-shirts, onesies, phone cases, and we'll see you next week.